Hey, do y'all remember this? What about this? I spent hours and hours playing Super Mario Brothers, the original one, with my siblings and my neighbors when I was a kid. And when we graduated to a Super Nintendo, it was a wrap. Super Mario, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Uniracers, Skitching, all weekend, before bed, after homework, sometimes before homework. It was just so much fun. And most people think that games, whether old or new, are just for entertainment. But games can also teach, and not just button pushing. They can help students learn subjects like reading, writing, science, and civics. Games can teach empathy and cooperation. Now, I was definitely supposed to do my homework before I started playing video games. And parents or guardians out there, you may require that of your kids too. But what if playing video games is the homework? Games can be how kids learn how to be good citizens and community members. But games can also be how they learn radical extreme ideologies. You're listening to The Mind Online, a podcast for educators from Teaching Tolerance. I'm your host, Monita Bell, and this episode is all about how games can be used to teach reading and writing, but also radicalization. You know, video games are just another tool that hate groups are using to reach new audiences, and in particular, younger audiences. That's my coworker Keegan Hankes, who helps the Southern Poverty Law Center track hate and extremism. We'll talk to him a little later about some problems in gaming culture. But first, let's hear about some really great educational uses of gaming. Minecraft for Education is a worldwide Microsoft project bringing game-based learning into the classroom. So we developed a refugee crisis learning resource within Minecraft. And that's a series of lessons that the teachers follow and a series of Minecraft worlds that the children work within and follow that narrative. You are a refugee. You have just been forced to leave your home because of conflict and you need to take a journey to try and reach a safe place. At one point you are trafficked and another point you cross a minefield, you meet other refugees, you stay in a refugee camp. That's, that's the narrative. So it's, an, it's ultimately an adventure map, wherein, but a very dark adventure where children become refugees. Minu Rami taught high school English in Philadelphia's public schools for years. And she's the author of the book, Thrive, Five Ways to Reinvigorate Your Teaching. And since 2016, she's been the manager for Minecraft education at Microsoft. You know, frankly, I, I, I was, I'm a complete noob. Um, I'm not a typical gamer. So I look after our community and our training efforts to help educators who in a lot of ways are like me, who are like, what, Minecraft? Like, do teach us? How does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> and so for folks who may not know what Minecraft looks like or how the game goes, can you just describe it? What's the object of the game? What does it look like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, starting with just that, like, what's the object of the game? Uh, specifically, Minecraft Education is is another version of the popular game Minecraft that's played by millions of players around the world. And 
It's a very player-driven game. Um, you get to decide how you want to play it and in what mode you want to play it. And especially in creative mode, there is no limit to what you can create. So in some ways, you can think of it like digital Legos. It's a block-based game, so using blocks of different types, you really get to make the world the way you, you want it. And the way I think about it is it's helping students really craft limitless worlds. The, the, that's the one way I put it. And um, by not having this like one finite way that you're playing it, it really encourages students to express themselves, their ideas about the world, and what they want the world to look like, um, which is what really drew me to this work. So the ultimate output for me with a project like the refugee crisis is teaching life skills. How do we teach our children to make good decisions about when to take action and what action to take? In order to create something good and create a world that we all want to live in in the future, we have to teach our kids empathy and understanding of each other. And I think that's the base for an open heart. I mean, let's go back to where I grew up as a teacher, Philadelphia, and you ask a group of elementary school students using Minecraft, can you show us what you would like Philadelphia to look like 50 years from now? That kind of work is happening in classrooms across the world because both educators and students are taking this opportunity of using a very expressive and immersive experience like Minecraft education to work on projects like that. Just a couple of months ago, we were part of this incredible program named Coral Crafters. With that, we were helping the environment in our country, well, actually worldwide, eh, to create a coral reef. Me siento muy feliz saber que algo que tú diseñaste va a estar ayudando al mundo. Our students were actually going to create a sculpture built in Minecraft. And after it was, it was built in Minecraft, that was then going to be made with a, an element named Vire Rock, which helps to foster the, the growth of the coral reef uh, much faster than in regular circumstances. And once it was constructed, now it was going to be placed on the coast of Cozumel. Algo que él y yo diseñamos que va a servir a, al mundo, algo que lo está ayudando a, a, a que viva más tiempo. Es algo fantástico. And for them and even for us, it's amazing that something that they love to use and they like to work around has helped them develop something in order for them to help their planet. And that's what we want to teach our students. I think we learn by tinkering. We learn by trial and error. Mm -hmm. We learn by talking mm -hmm. to other people. And I think this idea of play-based learning actually would seem quite natural to uh, educators, especially educators who believe in giving the students an opportunity to meet the students where they are and using things that they're passionate about and bringing that into the classroom. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I've been influenced by people like Chris Emden, who's who's using hip-hop to reach students and educators. And it's the same idea. Students are passionate about hip-hop. How does that fit into the pedagogy and the work of for us as educators when we're trying to reach students? Well, students are 
into Minecraft? What would it look like if Minecraft was used as a, a tool to help foster things like creativity and critical thinking and communication and collaboration? You're talking about game-based learning as opposed to, say, gamification or gamifying a task to make it more like a game. Yeah. How would you differentiate the two and um, how do you see game-based learning in particular as something that can be central to as opposed to adjunct to? Yeah, these terms get thrown around a lot in, mm-hmm. in our field. And the way I think about gamification is like it's adding a game element to a non-game scenario. Game-based learning is quite different from that. Instead of just incorporating uh, an element, it's really using an actual game to teach. Let's say you want to teach the idea of buildings or homes that are built in a way so that they're sustainable. Well, all the things that you would do when you're learning about sustainable homes, you would still do, but you would actually have students build the model of their home in Minecraft. So... You know, you might still have students read articles or background information about sustainable buildings. You might still have classroom lectures or discussions. But then when it comes to actually building that model, the unique affordance of students being able to build quite realistic and immersive models for homes. And I think the the thing that really moves me in this work is that they'd be working with other students. So there'd be the the things that we say that we value in education, there would be an Mm. expression of creativity. There would be an effort to collaborate. There would be an effort to solve problems together. And to me, that's the difference between gamification and game-based learning. Yes, and I was going to say, you know, you were talking about the goals that we have of education, that students are collaborating, they're exhibiting their creativity, and also getting at that diversity yeah. element and understanding perspectives unlike your own. Yeah, absolutely. The other example that I might give is, you know, you have an empty lot in your neighborhood. How should that space be made into a public space? That's just as much about diversity and use of public space and who has a voice and who doesn't and how do we actually bring students vision to life you know we have a nonprofit founded by Mojang Studios called Block by Block that's exactly what what that work does that organization goes into countries around the world and helps folks of all all backgrounds and all types come together to redesign public spaces using Minecraft. And being able to ask a group of 30 students to work in groups of three and say, you know what? Yeah, we do have that empty lot in our uh, school's neighborhood. What do you think should be there instead? That's, again, Mm. a powerful invitation for students to tell us how they want to see the world, what kind of world they want to live in and play in and work in. We're not trying to turn your students into gamers. We're trying to turn your gamers into students. Some teachers can make really boring history classes and I didn't want to be that teacher. 
my first students helped me building my own Minecraft history curriculum. And with Minecraft, they felt that I really care about them because I wanted them to feel engaged and involved in the classroom. We created the world itself. We created the world we were playing in. And that's incredible. I had some hard difficulties at the beginning, but some experts of my class helped me, and then I became an expert. I thought it was very interesting because we could build and demonstrate what we were learning in class. Students started to show competences and skills that through the game, they were much more easily expressed. Now my first reaction was like, Oh my God, this is a 3D world and I could do whatever I want to do. I could build my own house and my dad is an architect. And he was like, whoa, you could help me with this and you can become an architect. You're a math teacher and you want to teach area and perimeter? Well, you can do that in Minecraft because everything's built with mm -hmm. blocks and you can make each of those blocks a unit for that measurement. I gave you the sustainable home example for science. Mm -hmm. You can have students, we're literally teaching the, the Mars generation. Probably some of our students will actually be part of the mission that will take humanity to Mars, you know, build a mm. spaceship to Mars or what would a human habitat on Mars look like. If you're thinking about history or especially specific to folks who pay attention to the work of teaching tolerance, take a local landmark and study the history behind it and reimagine it in more just ways. Or what would mm. your city or your neighborhood look like 50 years from now? All of these are invitations or provocations for using Minecraft in the classroom. And I think once you get educators to see the possibility the expert, uh, the expertise and the expert support that they need, they can actually get that from their students. And which is what me and, and the rest of our Minecraft education team tries to do. We try to remove the fear of the unknown and say that the best experts of Minecraft are already sitting in front of you. You have 30 of them in your classroom. You just have to kind of get out of their way and give them the opportunity to show you what they can do. What do you love about Minecraft? That you can create stuff. Farms, I build um, houses, I build villages. Your mind is free for anything you want to do. The creativity that we can do. It's weird because we're playing it at school. Learning of the past would be the teacher standing in front of the classroom, hand feeding them the information that they need to know. Teachers need to take a step back. We need to allow our students some of that voice and choice so that they can uh, elevate that passion inside of them. We have to engage them in the classroom with the kind of relevant things they are doing outside of the classroom. One of the things that lends itself so well to that is Minecraft Education Edition. It gives students the chance to collaborate with each other and work together in ways that they may not have been able to before and they come up with new ideas while they're learning, which is what we want our students, we want them to think, we want them to learn how to think, not what to think. I mean, you can apply science, geometry. I don't think there is a lesson that you couldn't do where you couldn't apply Minecraft. As an educator, I have to tap into what motivates my students. If it's using technology, if it's using game-based learning, if it's an app, that's the best way that we're gonna get it. We wanna move them from that consumer into creators, producers, curious students that want to find new ways to do things. Say cheese! cheese. <laughs>
those who are listening who want to get started, they should certainly check out our site, education.minecraft.net. We have over 500 lessons that give you a flavor of what educators around the world are are doing uh, with Minecraft. These lessons come from educators themselves and with partnerships like World Wildlife Foundation, Smithsonian, the Royal Foundation in UK. And most recently, we worked with EdSurge on Mm -hmm. a guide for teaching with games. And since this podcast is primarily centered on digital literacy, how would you say games and gaming fit into building students' digital literacy? Games and gaming are inherently collaborative. They require, even though you can you know, build up by yourself in Minecraft, it is way more powerful when you put two or three students in the same world working on a common problem. I think what games uniquely do is they allow students to practice things like, I want to advocate for my idea, or you know what, in this moment, I might need to listen to what you're passionate about and blend that with my own idea to make our collective idea better. We want our students, as Chris Lehman would say, to be you know, thoughtful, wise, and kind. I think games are a great platform for that kind of teaching and learning. And most importantly, there are thousands of educators around the world, probably in your own district or in your backyard or in your town, mm. already doing this work. You know, reach out to us. Our team is on Twitter. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. And we'd love to help you connect with both Um, global and local educators who can help you get started on your Minecraft journey. Um, We're always all all learning, and, and you're invited to this party. That was Minu Rami, manager for Minecraft education at Microsoft. Look for this episode of The Mind Online at tolerance.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to Minecraft games and lessons, all ready for the classroom. And now let's take a quick break. Did you know that Teaching Tolerance has other podcasts? We've got Teaching Hard History, which builds on our framework, Teaching Hard History, American Slavery. Listen as our host, history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, brings us the lessons we should have learned in school through the voices of leading scholars and educators. It's good advice for teachers and good information for everybody. We've also got Queer America, hosted by professors Lila Roop and John D'Amelio. Joined by scholars and educators, they take us on a journey that spans from Harlem to the frontier West, revealing stories of LGBTQ life that belong in our consciousness and in our classrooms. Find both podcasts at tolerance.org podcasts and use them to help you build a more robust and inclusive curriculum. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, host of Teaching Hard History, another podcast from Learning for Justice. Educators can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You'll also find the link in the show notes. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, 
collaboration, all lowercase. And now, back to The Mind Online. Okay, welcome back to The Mind Online. For decades, we at the Southern Poverty Law Center have monitored hate groups. My coworker, Keegan Hankus, focuses on the online propaganda of far-right extremists. Here's my chat with Keegan. I'm a senior research analyst in the Intelligence Project, uh, which is the part of the Southern Poverty Law Center that tracks hate and extremism. I've been doing this for about six years, and I would say that uh, hate in the gaming community has been a fixture the entire time I've been here. Gaming in general is an enormous industry. I've seen information that says it's bigger than both film and music combined. And what we're really talking about is, I think last fall, a survey came out that said there are 211 million Americans who play video games of some sort. I think it's important to point out, right, I mean, that's not just people playing console games, that's cell phone games, that's computer games, it's all sorts of different mediums. And that huge population of people necessarily is going to include some who participate in toxic and hate-filled communities and ideologies. What are some of the biggest things you've learned in terms of patterns that have developed or how hateful actors are using gaming for their purposes? You know, in my experience, I think the biggest takeaway is actually that, you know, hate is not necessarily endemic to people who play video games or that population. You know, video games are just another tool that hate groups are using to reach new audiences and in particular younger audiences. Uh, this has been true for, you know, at least two decades. There's an individual who passed away years ago. His name is William Pierce. He was the founder of the National Alliance, which has been one of the most notorious neo-Nazi groups in U.S. history. His organization actually developed a video game in 2002, and he said this explicitly. You know, he talked about it as just another tool to reach young minds. And that's also how they think about many other mediums that aren't video games. You know, this is just one more way to get an ideology or an idea um, that is racist or otherwise bigoted to an audience of people that they're trying to recruit. Can you talk about that game in particular? What were some of the features of it? First off, the game was titled Ethnic Cleansing, which Hmm. says a lot, right? I mean, that's (laughs) a giant red flag. You know, we're not even talking about, for instance, a more nuanced approach where somebody might be playing Fortnite or another popular video game and inserting racist rhetoric into a chat room or a voice chat feature. Um, So it was very, very explicit. The other thing that I think is very interesting is it was obviously a very short game. It was done with very little effort from the National Alliance. So they basically took a software package or a gaming software package and just inserted images and music into the game and then made a very, very short racist plot that the players went through. It wasn't like they had made some masterful, artful, and subtle game to recruit people. It was literally just a quick port that brought all these ideas into one space and let Mm. them have this outlet to bring people in. Right, and and to present it in a way that's supposed to be fun. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a plot. You can, you know, advance through levels, and I believe the last part of the game, of course, there's a lot of killing of minorities Mm. and other horrible, horrible elements, but the last part of the game, you actually are uh, supposed to kill the uh, prime minister of Israel at the time. Wow. Yeah, well, it's very, very troubling. I mean, especially when you think about the legacy and the history of the National Alliance, right? You know, this is a group whose leader wrote a book that influenced Timothy McVeigh, who actually mm. went and tried to strike a blow and killed something like 160 people in Oklahoma City in the mid-90s. Can you talk about some of the most popular games through which hateful actors are trying to reach people? People who participate in hate movements actually are just also playing the most popular games of the moment. 
And the reason for that is that they are, like in any other medium, trying to reach the largest audience of people. One example I can give you of this in, in recent years is when Pokemon Go, the cell phone version of the Pokemon games, came out. Uh, we saw individuals from the Daily Stormer take flyers and place them at the locations in the real world where if you had your cell phone out and you were out trying to catch a Pokemon, you would end up going. And they would put oh, wow. these flyers in those specific locations knowing that young people playing the game would go there to catch a Pokemon and also would see the flyer telling them to go to the Daily Stormer. Mm. Um, We've talked a little bit about the Daily Stormer before. It is the premier white supremacist website online. It's been operating since the 90s. Yeah. So recently I saw a screenshot of a prominent uh, neo-Nazi posting pictures of himself playing Grand Theft Auto, right? But he had actually taken racist music and programmed it into the radio stations in the game. So he was driving around in Grand Theft Auto listening to racist music. So mm -hmm. when somebody goes into these spaces and starts talking about, you know, white nationalist talking points and they start trying to find ways to insert these ideas, these are the same sorts of ideas that are used offline. So they talk about things, for instance, like demographic change, you know, the fact that, you know, white people will not be an absolute majority in this country projected in, early, in the early 2040s. You know, they also do things like try to amplify status anxiety. So they'll go out and try to find young white men in particular and kind of spread this narrative that, you know, their inheritance or their birthright is being taken away from them. You know, they have declining prospects and they really try to amplify this to create an anxiety that makes them more susceptible to white supremacist ideologies because you necessarily go out and look for someone else to blame for these bad things that are happening to you. You know, I think the other issue, and this is something that I know Teaching Tolerance has done a lot of work on, is just the toxicity of mainstream political rhetoric yeah. um, also perpetuates in these online spaces. They are not immune from the same sorts of um, speech that we've seen come out of the halls of power in the last couple of years in particular that have led to just a real decline in civility and a really, really nasty flavor of communication. Could you possibly describe what one of these early attempts to reach a single person might look like? You might have somebody in your headset, right, you know, saying, well, have you noticed that white men don't have these rights anymore or freedom of speech is you know, dying or isn't it awful that political correctness is ruining this country? And it happens very, very quickly and the game ends and you move on to the next one. Now. We're talking about a huge population of people who play video games, right? But if that happens, you know, a number of times, you start to see communities form and there are a lot of adjacent online spaces um, that play a role in this. You can think about this in terms of services like Discord. That is a chat platform that people who play video games frequently use. This was prominently used by white supremacists in the last several years to organize rallies and communicate and just handle uh, the online side of their uh, hate groups. Perhaps you get directed there from a gaming community online. Or perhaps you find it because somebody said something into your ear or you heard some idea or were exposed to it there. And you go out and join a place like Discord and you find yourself in a toxic community and you find yourself falling down the rabbit hole. Um, the same is true for spaces like 4chan or perhaps 8chan or maybe in the more mainstream part of this, you know, the really, really toxic parts of Reddit. Whenever we're talking about online radicalization, it really is not a vacuum. And it could be that it doesn't work and, you know, someone moves on, they hear something nasty and they keep going. Or it could be that they get curious and they find themselves walking down this pathway. Mm -hmm. It's just important to recognize that complexity when you think about how we're going to find effective ways to combat it. Some have argued that this idea of white supremacists using gaming to target young, vulnerable men is way overblown. 
and people who are talking about it, especially in mainstream news, are fear-mongering. So how serious is the threat? I think it's important to shy away from oversimplifications that I think you see rightful pushback towards in the mainstream media in particular. You know, I think there is a uh, inclination to look for a particular answer to why something terrible happened. You know, this goes probably most famously all the way back to the Columbine shootings right. uh, in Colorado, where you had a whole host of people trying to say that this happened because of the video game Doom, which I think is a really unproductive oversimplification. Um, the violence in the video game may have had some effect, but of course that's not the whole picture. It's not even close. And I think that's also true today. I mean, I think you know we've seen acts of violence committed by people who play video games. Take, for instance, the New Zealand tragedy uh, that took place just several weeks ago. On the other hand, uh, I do think that we do need to take this stuff seriously. I mean, when I think about radicalization and I think about a trend that I've seen in the last three to four years, which is that hate groups that we previously thought might be aging out to some extent, right? You know, you had a lot of middle-aged men showing up to events. You had a lot of folks who either grew up or were adults during, you know, a period of America that was segregated. That just hasn't been turned out to be the case anymore. You know, suddenly rooms are full of 20-something young white men. And I think that's really, really troubling. And then when you look at how that happened, I think video games are, of course, a part of it because they're a part of mainstream culture. And these are the battlegrounds that are sought out by white supremacists. It really bears paying attention to, and I think it's really not had enough scrutiny um, when it comes to thinking about how we can make these spaces safer What do you think some of those solutions might look like? What are some ways we can actually counteract what's happening, especially as these digital spaces grow and there are so many nuanced ways they operate and uh, it's so diffuse? I think we need to find ways to make some of these more closed spaces visible. A lot of people play video games, but, you know, frequently hear parents say, I don't really know what my child is doing in these online spaces. I guess they're playing Fortnite. I guess they're playing whatever online game but it's largely invisible. So I think we need to find ways to make these spaces more visible and more open and find ways to study them more effectively because this is just one more space related to white supremacy where there's not a good enough body of research and we should have more people studying this. Because we're talking about online gaming activity and often adults, whether it's parents or maybe even educators, don't know what, say, a kid is actually doing when they're playing a game or what they're being exposed to, they may not know those signs of vulnerability. Are, are there any signs of vulnerability that educators might be made aware of that they might be able to pick up on, or is it just too hard to tell? It's really hard to tell. The spaces are very closed and they're difficult to look at, and sometimes you hear stories about this all the time where I had no idea my child was doing this. Yeah. Um, that's a, it's not futile to try to recognize them. You know, knowing that language and knowing those spaces and being able to engage in conversations with children about them probably gives you a better chance of recognizing whether something is going wrong. But I think we can even zoom out and think about this from the perspective of trying to make sure that at the same time that we recognize this many people are playing the games and this is a very normalized part of American life at this point and even Mm -hmm. globally, that we need to look for signs of isolation. Right? So many of the stories that I end up reading when it's already too late and someone has gotten involved with a hate group or they've gotten involved with white supremacy involve an, a young individual 
who has felt so socially isolated that they've begun withdrawing and spending all their time not just in digital spaces like video games, but also chat rooms and forums and different darker parts of the internet. And I think being able to recognize that and find ways to promote kind of inclusiveness and to bring those people back away from those spaces some, you know, doesn't mean you have to stop using the internet, but just away from those spaces some can make a huge difference. This really does come back to finding ways to teach diversity and inclusion and to decrease this feeling of isolation and, and anxiety. Um, but so many hate groups are trying to amplify all the time. I mean, it really does come back to the core mission of teaching tolerance in my mind, which is finding ways to be inclusive, finding ways to bring more diversity into the, into the classroom and finding ways to get these students to open up their minds and, and stay you know, a little bit more expansive than maybe some of these online communities would have them have them be. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me for this episode of The Mind Online, a podcast for educators from Teaching Tolerance. I'm your host, Monita Bell, Managing Editor for Teaching Tolerance. And I want to give a special thank you to Keegan Hankis of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project and Minu Rami, Manager for Minecraft Education at Microsoft. Thank you for your time and your expertise. This podcast was inspired by our digital literacy framework, which offers seven key areas where students need support developing digital and civic literacy skills and features lessons for kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. Each lesson is designed in a way that can be used by educators with little to no technology in their classrooms. The digital literacy framework and all its related resources, including a series of student-friendly videos, a professional development webinar, and a PD module, can be found online at tolerance.org slash diglit. That's tolerance.org slash D-I-G-L-I-T. This episode was produced by Barrett Golding. Thanks to Microsoft Production Studios in Redmond, Washington, and WABE-FM, the NPR station in Atlanta, Georgia, for recording our guests. Our production supervisor is Kate Schuster, and our music is from Poddington Bear. You'll find links to all the resources we discussed in this episode at tolerance.org slash podcasts. Just look for The Mind online and find this episode. And if you like what you've heard, subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues and anybody else you can think of, your family members. And when you share about what you've heard and what you've learned on Twitter or Instagram, use hashtag TeachDigitalit. I'll see you next time. <laughs>